0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 21 verse 9 through 14 and then chapter 21 verses 22 through chapter 22 verse 5 which begins in our church Bibles on page 1041. So please stand if you're able as we read from the New Testament. clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates twelve angels and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its lamp will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Please be seated.
1: Couple of quick announcements. No, Andrea Kane has not yet delivered. Uh, According to the latest email from her that I received yesterday, uh, she's still waiting for number two to show up. Oh, she's here. Andrea, would you tell us whether or not you're still waiting for number two to show up? (laughs) Goodness. See, you're waiting. Well, today is the due date. I really didn't expect you to be here. Glad to have you here. You can encourage her later on. The other announcement is about this uh, insert in your bulletin that has the gray slip on the top of it. We are uh, squeezing out another week of Advent Christmas uh, today, but beginning next week, we will resume our series on the book of Corinthians. Steve will be back in the pulpit then. And uh, this insert has a catalog of all the sermons that will be preached between now and Easter. So take a look at that, if you will. That said, let's bow our heads for prayer one more time. Father, the theme that I'm about to try to address is probably one of the most glorious, probably one of the most sublime, probably one of the most uh, hard-to-understand themes of our faith. And I'm very sure that unless you come and unless you set these words of mine on fire, uh, they will be just words. But we have the good hope that you will add your spirit to everything that's being said and you will light these words for us and burn them onto our hearts. I pray accordingly for your grace to be poured out on us right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as um, indicated already, this morning's message is the fourth of four sermons on Bible texts which draw out the oh-so-tight connection between Jesus and light, and it's a connection that's been our December focus because of the close association of Christmas and light. And with today's text, our theme is taken to its ultimate climactic end. It's taken into the stratosphere, really, because with today's text, we learn that Jesus, the uncreated light, who came into the world to turn all of us into children of light, will himself be the unending light and lamp of the world to come. So much so that we're told in Revelation chapter 21, and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then again in Revelation chapter 22, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So do you see, the light which was in the beginning, which came into the world, which was and is the light of this world, whether or not we acknowledge Him to be this world's light, is destined to shine in a way that eliminates the need for lamplight, moonlight, moonlight, and sunlight. The lights of lamps, torches, electric bulbs, the moon, the sun, and the stars will become unnecessary when the Lord Almighty reigns on Mount Zion and Jerusalem is lit up by his boundless glory. As themes go, today's is more than a little bit appropriate for the last Sunday of 2013, since the end of one year and the start of another is a time for us to take stock of what's been and to think about what might yet be. You know, predictions abound about what to expect in 2014. Fortune magazine predicts no government shutdowns in the year to come. Glad to hear that. ABC News says that 2014 will be the year that Hillary announces her intention to run for president. And many movie sites predict that Tom Hanks will walk away with a Best Actor Oscar in 2014 for his portrayal of a cargo ship captain in the movie Captain Phillips, while science websites are trumpeting that the promise of virtual reality headsets will at last, at last, be fulfilled. I can't wait. (laughs) Now, whether or not these predictions for 2014 pan out remains to be seen. They might. Then again, they might not. But, the prediction that the radiant light of Jesus will one day make the light of lamps and torches and electric bulbs, the moon, the sun, and the stars unnecessary? Well, in this case, it is not a matter of, we'll just have to wait and see. It's a case of, we have seen, and therefore we wait. We wait patiently, We wait expectantly. We wait with our heads held high, with our hearts full of hope and our hands full of work to do as we prepare for the dawn of that glorious, glorious day. But what exactly do we see when we see that Jesus is the light and lamp of eternity? We'll consider some important particulars in just a minute, but first we need to consider these indispensable preliminaries in order for us to get our bearings in Revelation 21 and 22. So first this. We need to realize that the world in view in Revelation 21 and 22 is not heaven. You need to understand that the world of eternity that we're about to explore is not the world which we routinely call heaven by which we typically mean the present invisible dwelling place of God and of angels and the place to which the souls of God's elect go after breathing their last. Judy Bronson, our dear sister, entered heaven several months ago after a long battle with cancer. Onye Uwasomba followed her into his heavenly rest on December 2nd, when he, too, died of cancer. And just this week, Charles James's mom, Bernice, passed away, and his family had reason to sing some of my mother's favorite songs, to give thanks to Jesus for his saving sacrifice, and to turn on the bright ceiling lights of the bedroom in which she died in a feeble effort to approximate the great light of heaven which welcomed her after she breathed her last. That's from an email in which he announced Bernice's death just this past Monday. Now, all of these saints entered heaven on dying, but they did not enter the world of eternity, which is the focus of this morning's sermon because that world... The world of the new heaven and the new earth is not yet. It's in the making. And it has been since Jesus returned to the present heaven to prepare a place for his followers. But it is not yet ready for general release. The distinction, I don't think, is an incidental one. It's vitally important, and you need to understand it if you have any interest in the afterlife. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Heaven is not the last stop on that train that's bound for glory. It's a glorious port of call, but it's not the final destination. It's a waiting room for those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's a gathering point for those who die in the Lord. It's a layover for those who've set their hearts on pilgrimage to the city, whose architect and builder is God. But it's not the end of the line. The journey's end is a new heaven and a new earth, in which all that is heaven is earthy, and all that is earth is heavenly from which the curse has been removed, in which there is no night nor death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And about this new heaven and earth, John significantly notes, there is no longer any sea. More about that in just a minute. But the second preliminary. Secondly, the world described by John is real, or will be real, but the description provided isn't literal. Now, you need to understand that the description of the new heaven and earth provided by John, while a true report of what will really be, is figurative through and through and not literal. It's symbolic from beginning to end and not straightforward. So when John writes that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, and he says about it that there was no longer any sea, as he does in Revelation 21, he most definitely does not mean, and I didn't see any large bodies of water in this new heaven and earth. He means instead that the disorder and the heartbreak that's characteristic of this old order of things and symbolized by the sea throughout the Old Testament will be altogether absent from this new creation. There was no longer any sea as biblical shorthand for there will be no violence, no chaos, no bondage to decay in the new heaven and earth. No wars between nations, no inequalities between the sexes, no inequities between races, no divisions among friends, no sleepless nights, no pain-filled days, no fear of the future, no incapacitating feelings of inadequacy. None. Nada. Zip. Zero. All gone. There's no longer any sea. Similarly, when he describes the new heaven and earth as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, he's not asking us to imagine this world wearing white and trailing a long train behind it. Rather, he's inviting us to relish the prospect of life in a world which is fresh and flawless, in which every day will be the first day of spring, and every heart will have a new song to sing, and they'll sing of the joy every morning will bring. That's Tony Bennett, for those of you who are wondering. But he was right on about this new heaven and earth. Accordingly, when an angel says to John, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and he's not introduced to a bride, but a city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, we shouldn't be surprised at the substitution of one metaphor for another. It's just John mixing his metaphors in an earnest effort to make sense of realities that were coming at him from the borderlands of understanding. What he saw was sublime. It was without precedent. It was nothing less than the summit of all of history, the reason for all things ever existing. He saw the triumph of light over darkness. And of necessity, he had to employ a waterfall of word pictures to describe the vision that danced in front of his eyes. And so when he tells us that the new heaven and earth is dressed like a bride who is herself like a city, and that the city's borders are 12,000 stadia long and 12,000 stadia wide and 12,000 stadia high. We shouldn't take that to mean, as some literal-minded commentators do, that there will be an actual metropolis in the new heaven and earth whose boundaries will be about the same as the distance between, oh, Richmond and Oklahoma City, and from Oklahoma City to Winnipeg, Canada, and from Winnipeg, Canada to Quebec City, and then from Quebec City back to Richmond, we should rather take note that the city's dimensions form a cube, as did the dimensions of the most holy place in Solomon's temple. And then note that the city he saw was constructed out of pure gold, as was the most holy place in Solomon's temple, and that the city's walls were covered with precious jewels, as were the walls of the most holy place until it dawns on us. My God! He's trying to tell us that the entirety of this coming new creation will be a holy of holies, will be the dwelling place of God, and like the holy of holies, will be shot through with the glorious light of God's unmediated, unveiled presence. so, the second preliminary observation, the world described by John is a real world or it will be. It's in the making, but the description he provides isn't literal. It's metaphorical. And God willing, the importance of this will become still more apparent when we get to the main points in just a minute. But first, one more preliminary, and it's this. The world in view is the world for which you and I were created. This new heaven and earth, and not the present heaven, is the world which we dream about in all of our imaginings, and in all of our myths, and all of our minds, and all of our songs and dances and epics, in our quest for form and significance, and beauty beyond fragmentation and exhaustion and chaos. That's a beautiful quote from Thomas Howard's Christ the Tiger. Though never seen or experienced, though requiring a jumble of metaphors and word pictures to describe its character and essence, still, on hearing the description of this new heaven and earth in Revelation 21 and being told about it in a message like this one, Something primal, I think, is touched inside of us, something deep stirs within, and we're moved to ask, is it possible? Can it be? Will the dream come true? Will there really be a world in which there is no night? A world from which the curse is finally removed? a city whose gates are never closed because nothing needs to be kept out and nothing, nothing, nothing needs to be shut in. And God says, yeah, there will be. And this is it, your future, true home. So those are the preliminaries. Now to the particulars. What are we to make of John's twice repeated report that there will be no need for the sun or moon in the world to come because the glory of God will be its light and the lamp will be the lamb will be its lamp well three things at least these three things First what it doesn't mean it does not mean that there will be no sun or moon in that world to come only that the sun and moon that will be won't be needed in that world in the way that they're needed in this world. You know, I think that as points go, this is an important one because so many of us believe mistakenly that the world to come will be totally different from our present work world in all of its glorious, fleshy physicality that it'll be an immaterial, insubstantial world that's inhabited by the spirits of disembodied men and women who live ghost-like lives in a ghostly universe. Like the uh, Cuba Gooding character, who guides the Robin Williams character through his first experience of the afterlife in the movie What Dreams May Come. Too many of us believe that thought is what's real, The physical, that's the illusion. Ironic, huh? But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the new heaven and earth anticipated by the Bible is this world. This very world liberated from its bondage to decay. It's this very world with its sun and moon, with its mountains and valleys, its deserts and its rainforests, its tropical breezes and its arctic winds, All of them come into their own. And this insight into the nature of the world to come is unique to Christianity. And one of its core convictions, our ultimate end is not eternal consciousness in a spirit world. It isn't life on a cloud. It'll be life on a farm, in a suburb, in a town or a city. But it'll be a farm suburb, town, and city, the likes of which our eyes have never seen and our minds have never conceived. There will be mountains in the new heaven and earth, but there'll be mountains that burst into song before you. There'll be trees in that world, but the trees will be trees that somehow are able to clap their hands. It's not that there won't be seeds to sow or crops to harvest. It's just that the seeds sown will germinate, mature, and bear fruit so efficiently that those who reap will overtake those who sow. And there'll be food to eat too and beverages to drink, but the food will be fit for the banquet of a king, and the beverage of choice will be aged wine of exceptional quality. As Isaiah promises, after the Lord destroys the shroud that enfolds all peoples and swallows up death forever, after he wipes away the tears from all faces and removes his people's disgrace, he will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meals and the finest of wines. Forget the virtual reality headset. For as Jesus possessed a body that could be seen and touched after he was raised to life from death, so much so that he chided his disbelieving disciples, saying, look at my hands and my feet, it's I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Even so, Will those who follow him be raised to life in bodies of flesh and bone? And on rising they'll inherit a new heaven and earth which will look and feel remarkably like this world because it will be this world on the other side of liberation from its bondage to decay. And though the light of the sun and moon as we know them won't be needed in that new order because the Lord is its light and the Lamb is its lamp, they will certainly have their place in its daytime and nighttime skies. And so the first point, no need for sun or moon doesn't mean that there will be no sun or moon in the world to come. And the second point, the report that there's no need for the sun in the world to come because God is its light means, and this is something quite serious, the reality and primacy of God will be inescapable and undeniable in that world to come. See, in our present world, the heavens are not God. But even as I speak, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And the skies are not God. And yet they proclaim the work of His hand. For all of that, though, we men and women can still, if we want to, turn a deaf ear to their witness and a blind eye to the evidence they present in order to deny that the Lord God Almighty is their creator and that we are, accordingly, His debtors. We can do that if we choose. But listen, in the world to come, the heavens will not declare the glory of God. They will not be good and reasonable facsimiles which point to and represent the glory. Rather, they will be God's glory turned inside out, God's glory externalized. As much as the heavens and the skies and the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the oceans are of God now, God will be in the heavens and skies, and mountains, and valleys, and rivers, and oceans then. And it's with this in view that John reported, I saw no temple in the city. That is, he saw no specially designated building in the city in which God's glory was uniquely manifested. Because, as he went on to say, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are that city's temple. That is, God and the Lamb will indwell the city, which is the bride, which is the new creation, and the city bride new creation will indwell God. They will interpenetrate each other. They will become one flesh, as it were. So much so that the Apostle Paul is able to say in the book of Corinthians, God will be all in all. Now I've seen sunsets, and maybe you have too of such extraordinary beauty that they've tempted me to fall down to my knees in front of them and to cry out, "My Lord and my God!" And to have done so would have been blasphemous because those clouds and the sunlight that burnished them were most definitely not my Lord. And my God, they were only his handiwork. But in the new heaven and earth, when God is all in all, when God and the Lamb are the temple, when the holy city comes down out of heaven from God and has the glory of God in it, well then, to fall down in front of a sunset in that world and to cry out, my Lord and my God, won't be blasphemous in some way that I cannot yet understand. I will be seeing Him as He is in the sunset, in the cloud, in the rainbow, in the light. I will be seeing God face to face. Which is why I said, that you won't be able to avoid, deny, dodge, or hide from God in that world to come. He'll be everywhere present in all things, including its citizens. And for that reason, I'll say now that the only people who will want to inhabit that new heaven and earth are those who leave this earth already in love with God and who want Him, not His gifts, not even His heaven, above all things. As one speaker put it, since there's nothing but God in the new creation, only people who adore him, only people who adore him now will want to be there then. And that still again runs contrary to so much that's commonly believed in our culture about the world to come. It was represented, for example, by What Dreams May Come, that movie I mentioned a minute ago. In it, the Robin Williams character has a breakthrough, and he's at last able to apprehend the world to which he's been transported after dying. Huh! He chortles. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's my dream come true. But where's God in all of this? He asks his guide, Cuba Gooding. And Cuba answers, oh, he's up there somewhere shouting down that he loves us, wondering why we can't hear him. No, 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 No. not so. God will not be shouting down from somewhere up there in the new heaven and earth because he'll be imminent in everything. The reality and primacy of God will be inescapable and undeniable in the world to come because he will be all in all. And with that in mind, our third point. As the sun and moon are to our present world, so God will be to us in that world to come. Now think. What do the sun and moon mean to us now? What do they provide for us? They rule the day and night, and by them the times and seasons are determined. They're the wellspring of life as we know it, the energy by which all of life is sustained. They're the first cause of every creature comfort. Without them, no food. Without them, no shelter. Without them, no clothing. Without them, no fossil fuels. Every sunrise signals the possibility of fruitful labor and meaningful relationships. Every moonrise signals the opportunity to rest, to take delight in the day's labors and savor the company of families and friends. Take away the light of the sun and the moon and you take away the mother of beauty, as Charles Spurgeon put it. Take the light away and there's no beauty anywhere. The fairest woman charms the eye no more than a heap of ashes when the sun sets and the room grows dark. Without light, no radiance flashes from the sapphire. No peaceful ray proceeds from the pearl. There's nothing of beauty left when light is gone. And By the light of the moon and sun, perception is made possible. And by perception, observation is made possible. And by observation, knowledge is made possible. And by knowledge, well, I trust you get the point. In this world, the light of the sun and the moon means everything to us because the Lord God, who is their creator, has delegated these functions to them. But, but, in the world to come, he'll take these functions back to himself and will become himself the one who rules our days and nights and the one by whom our times and seasons will be determined and the one by whom all Our life will be sustained, by whom our endlessly fruitful labors will be made possible, by whom all beauty will be apprehended and all rest enjoyed, and all of it without the mediation of a sun or a moon. How can that be, you ask? And I answer, I don't know. I can't explain the mechanics of it. No one can. But we can recall the time when Jesus led three of his disciples to a mountaintop and was transfigured before them so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And remembering that, I believe we have at least a hint of how the coming world will be illuminated by the light of God and the lamp, lamp. Of the Lamb. Well, what to do? What do you do with all of this? Let me end by suggesting one of two things, depending on where you stand relative to this light. Begin by asking yourself, "Do I have any of God's light inside of me now?" Put another way, are you aware of a time when you were darkened in your understanding? and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in you? And can you point to another time when God flooded your heart with the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, when the kindness and love of God appeared to you and saved you, not because of righteous things that you had done, but because of the mercy of God in Jesus See, I'm asking this because, as I said a few minutes ago, you will not enjoy the light of God and the lamp of the Lamb in the world to come if you do not enjoy Him and His light in the world right now. If your answer is, no, I don't have His light inside of me, or I'm not sure if I have His light inside of me, then my follow-up question to you is, do you want it? And Are you willing to receive it? If so, here's what you do. Give up the light of self-reliance by taking the Lamb who is the light of eternity to be the light of your present life. Let the Lamb of God be the atoning sacrifice for your sin. Let him be your sin substitute who died in your place. Let the light of his gospel shine into your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let him deliver you into the kingdom of light. Let him be your star of Bethlehem now so that he can be your son of righteousness forever. And if your answer was yes, yes, I have his light inside of me, yes, God made his light shine into my heart and has given me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, then, Here's the advice I give you, and it's the advice I kept on hearing from others as I prepared for this morning's sermon. First of all, rejoice. You're headed for home. And then second, fix your eyes on these things. Imagine them. Imagine them as often as you can. Ponder them. Contemplate them. Meditate on them. In keeping with God's promise to you, look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Though no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has in store for us. Still, mull over what's to come as best you can. Do what you can to understand and marvel over those metaphors. Reckon on them, be encouraged by them, invest in them and live for them. Because our present sufferings do not compare to the glory that's in store for us. And then, and then at last, join the Spirit and the bride and say with them, Come, come, Lord Jesus, the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. Let's pray. I am an owl in the night trying to describe the day. That's what Spurgeon said when he preached from this text. It's how I feel, God. But if you'll let your spirit shine his light onto our hearts and apply these things to us, then they'll make a difference. And though we live, we still live in the night. Will nevertheless anticipate the day and live for it. Come, come quickly, Lord Jesus, our bright morning star. I pray this in your name. Amen. Please
0: stand with us first for our hand in response. Glorious things. Is-